Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Tapping Up podcast with myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. Technically, the first episode in a couple of weeks, but we did give you a double tap over the weekend. I solely blame Ian. Decided to uh, go to the saddest place in the world, but uh, ultimately his own fault. Yeah, um, disappointing Krakow, I'd say, for a stag. Uh, I'd heard quite a lot of good things about it. Um, unimpressed, I would have said, given some of the places I've been to in Eastern Europe. Um, Riga is a, is a, is a g- good little uh, trip away. If anyone is listening, looking at a stag do. Uh, Tallinn in Estonia, another one. But um, yeah, I wouldn't get big in a hurry to go back to Krakow, if I'm honest with you. Yeah, I mean, you were saying that a few of the people on the stag do, and you mentioned it on, um, if anyone's just heard a loud noise, it's because I've just full on smacked my microphone that I think I've just brought my knuckle. Um, <laughs> you were saying on Good. the, oh, cheers, yeah. you were saying on the double tap episode um, last weekend that essentially, <laughs> despite it being a stag do, and despite obviously it's supposed to be really happy and you get pissed and you have a right laugh, um, it was one of the ideas of the people organising it to go to Auschwitz, which you didn't partake in. I did not. I had no interest whatsoever in going to a concentration camp where six million people died. Uh, not only is that not a particularly something that's on my bucket list of places to see, um, I understand the historical value of it, but um uh, me and two of the other real lads uh, just hit the pub uh, and got arsehold. So uh, I think, again, I'm probably slightly repeating what happened, um, what we said on the uh, the double tap. But that night we'd arranged a steak night, a nice steak joint. Um, and they had gone back to get changed and we were like, fuck it, we'll just stay out drinking. Probably at least 10 double vodkas deep by this point. So they're all sat around the table when we get there. Very sombre, as you can probably imagine. It's not exactly a happy place, and I'm sure uh, it kind of brings you down. We just turned up pissed as fuck like a wrecking ball. Uh, there was, in fact, a rumour. Uh, I don't know how true it was, but the, uh, the table next to us got their meal free that we were that much of an outrageous uh, table to be sat next to in terms of language and what was you know the shenanigans that were going on so um yeah totally unlike me but um it was a strange mixture of emotions when we got there when you've got three people pissed out of their brain with uh you know like eight people about as depressed as they could possibly be i've got to call bullshit on the fact that you've just said that you had done 10 double vodka and or double rum and cokes because I've seen you drink, Ian. You can have about three or four Guinnesses and then you're on your ass. Mate, you say you say this. So if you go to somewhere like Poland and you watch them pour, they don't pour normal drinks. So they, they're, they're, I mean, one one guy got a, a, a vodka and Red Bull and it was like three quarters vodka. The shot percentage that makes it worse. This makes it even crazier. So it's probably worse. But uh, the, I mean, this was over. We went out at probably call it about 11.30, and the stag, uh, sorry, the steak was at about half seven, eight. So it was over a prolonged period of time. We'd got a little bit of grub in there, but um, yeah, I was arsehole. Anyone that knows you and anyone that's been out drinking with you 
knows that you're an absolute lightweight. I, I just can't imagine it. I'm worried for you next year in Vegas on my stag do because I feel like you'll get arrested. Don't you be worried, son. When I need to step up, I do. A, pon- a shit night in Ponty is not quite the same as when I need to put on my big boy pants. And uh, uh, shit night, is it now? Once we once we post this, I'll uh, I'll get a couple couple of the lads I got uh, who w- were not aware actually of uh, me. Uh, I rocked up to the airport in me tapping up hoodie, branded up to uh, rock to Poland. A few people weren't aware that that was uh, we had a podcast, so a couple of them uh, downloaded it for the flight over and we're quite impressed we've got some good feedback so i will ask one of the two uh that i went out with to comment when we post it up evidence or at least proof that it was at least 10 double vodkas so fuck you i doubt it i doubt it um sticking on disappointing lies um i had convinced myself that this weekend's ufc just gone um was going to be one of the greatest events that i've ever seen it was going to be a bit of a miracle really volk were going to do me proud we were going to see the decimation of a lot of the hype which we'll get onto with uh Chimayev. but it was one of the quickest cards i have ever watched in my life so much so that i was able to watch the end i think the entire second half of the england South Africa semi-final in the Rugby Union World Cup. And obviously, Paul Volk. I, I just I don't want to talk about it. We'll, we'll, we'll go through it, but I agree. I think of the, the, the five, I, I don't, I would agree with you. And I don't ever recall uh, a card of five fights and four first round finishes. All right. One of them was because of the um, uh, no contest, which again, we'll come on to discuss. But um yeah, it was. I've got to be honest. I, I I didn't actually mind that because often you get these fights, particularly if they're not particularly exciting. The the thing that I was quite surprised at, and what you often find in my experience before when there's quick finishes, is they then drag it out in between fights. But there was none of that. It was like bang, one fight was over, bang, straight onto the next one. I was actually really impressed with how quickly um, they hammered through the card. To be honest with you, I, 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 I'll be honest, I, I couldn't complain at all with, uh, you know, a nice speedy full card like that done in, what, hour and a half, if that? If that, yeah, I was going to say that the main card, absolutely rattled by it. I've never seen a main card as quick as that, and you can tell me otherwise, but I don't think... I don't remember one, I recall. certainly one yeah. I don't remember, no, no, I, I mean, it's in my notes, don't ever remember a card with four out of five first round finishes, so... um I would agree with you. But as you say, normally, in my experience, when you get that, they then string out the fights. You know, you get a good 10, 15 minutes delay in between the fights. But there was none of that. You know, one fight was over, bang, five minutes later, bang, they're bringing the guys out. So um, from a spectacle point of view and uh, as, as a spectator, it was it was good to watch. Before we get into the the main fights that we want to talk about, I've got to immediately start because I think you had just missed this I think it was just before you started tuning in with Victor Henry who was uh, fighting um, I think he's Javid Basharat off the top of my head Javid anyway um, what was this on the prelim on the prelims yes I didn't see any of the prelims poor Victor Henry who got absolutely I can't even describe it it literally makes me feel sick talking about it he essentially got one of the most vicious kicks I've ever seen right in his testicles. 
to sum it up uh, very, very bluntly, he collapses to the floor. This, I think I was messenger when it were happening, but he collapses you did, to you the did, floor. You did, yeah. The obviously they get the the five uh, minute timeout to try and get him back in. He's not moving anywhere. He's on the floor. He's writhing in pain. He's screaming, and then the doctor comes in, and the doctor we'll we'll talk about a little bit later as well. For he was clearly a superb doctor. Yeah, clearly fantastic. Walks in and goes, uh, "Yeah, he didn't kick you in the balls." And uh, I think the response from Victor Henry says, "No, no, he did. He caught me in the dick and balls. He caught me in the dick and balls." He's like, "No, no, I caught you in the leg." Victor Henry obviously then gets that fight cancelled. I think it was a, a, a no contest. It wasn't a DQ. Um, he goes to the doctor. They've said that there's no permanent damage, but he's going to walk funny for a, a few days. The swelling, it said, was the size of a satsuma is how bad it was. So just like my balls normally then. But, um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, and you've got to remember here that, that what, what what's fucked up about that is they're wearing a cup. Yeah. That's through a cup. That's not exactly like, as you say, like me or you, someone walks up to us in the street and kicks us in the nuts. We've got zero protection there. That's not a surprise. You know, these days they have quite sophisticated uh, and pretty good cups to protect from that kind of damage. But um, you were, you did message me and you did send me a video of it and it did look prime cock, literally. It, it were horrible. Bang it on the bell where the commentary team were like, why would he fake it? I was just, just going to say, why would you? Sense. Why would you fake a five minutes and rolling on the floor screaming if you've taken a leg to what? If he's trying, the doctor's trying to suggest is what a thigh kick? Thigh, yeah. It, it just it were horrible. It were absolutely horrible. But um, yeah, I wanted to give him a shout out because he made me feel sick for a good. 10, 15 minutes, but through no fault of his own, of course. But um, So w- would you say then that that was the second worst dick injury you've seen in MMA after the Bryce Mitchell drill <laughs> in pants incident? No, I mean, it, it might have been third behind that and me pulling my own dick off in excitement had Volk won that main event, but unfortunately he didn't. Um, so start on the card, Ian. Let's let's run through it while I, I sit in silence and cry a little bit. One thing I've got just before we start, which I thought was worth mentioning and came to my attention during uh, the week. I watched the, obviously everybody knows I'm a big Rogan fan. Uh, Rogan doesn't travel these days, so he only commentates on the big fights in America. So whenever it's abroad, he doesn't travel but he will often do fight companions with his mates. And they did a fight companion I was listening to. Uh, And one of the points me and you had discussed that was unclear to us at the time, but now clear to me or became clear from that podcast is Gamrot. So Gamrot was the backup, wasn't he, for both fighters in terms of uh, Makachev and Oliveira. And why did he not get the fight? Um, and as, uh, according to Rogan and you wouldn't have thought there's many people in the know more than Rogan, uh, Abu Dhabi, because of probably the money that they blast at the UFC have a clause in their contract with them that any main or co-main events have to be of a particular standing, if that's the right word, or contain fighters of a particular level. 
So effectively, Abu Dhabi, the, you know, the, the governing body, the government, whatever it is, whoever pays paying and, and you know, sport washing them, said, no, Gamrot's not a big enough name. You need to get someone else. Hence, Volk stepping up on 12 days notice and giving us the fight there. So I thought that was a an interesting point that I wasn't aware of, but explained something that me and you had discussed between ourselves as to hang on here, what's going on here? They already had a backup. Well, I strongly dislike that and I dislike everything involved that because personally, as I always said, I think Gamrot should have got that fight and uh, I think Volk should have been protected. I think he should have been nowhere near it and then I wouldn't have had to witness that. But um, he went for yeah, greatness. Yeah. You can't deny the man. Go, and, he did, and he made no excuses. He made he no didn't. again. He took it. He took defeat like a champion takes it. And we'll get on to his post interview comments when we get onto the main event. But where do you want to start? So let's 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 go through the card then. Seeing it's so quick. So um, I mean, you start off. You've got Saeed Nurgamenov, I believe, obviously um, one of the Nurgamenov clan. I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think he's Khabib's brother. I think he could be he's Khabib's cousin. Ironically, he's kind of known more for his flashy striking than actually his grappling, um, which is quite strange, obviously, coming from the, the Dagestani camps where uh, you know, the Islams, the 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 Khabibs, and they're they're known for their incredible grappling and ground and pound. Um that was one of the nastiest guillotines I've ever seen. He snapped that on, and that was about as tight as that shit gets. If you if you wanted to give somebody a um, instructional video, and in fact, I actually sent it because I think again, not wanting to repeat ourselves, I gave one of the lads who got a little bit gobby and out of his box a guillotine because he dared me that I couldn't on the stag do. And put him down in front of eight other people. This is a lad who's a, a, a lot bigger than me and humbled that motherfucker. I actually sent him that video and said, "You should watch that because that's what I, that, that's what I could have done to you if I wanted to." But um, that was that uh, as guillotines go, that's as hard as it gets. That was absolutely beautiful, picturesque. It was a throwing back, so obviously put him out and then. As he's standing up, he kind of just launches his head backwards, gives him whiplash as well, and throws him to fly. It was brutal. It was really, really good, though. It was really interesting to watch and impressive to watch as well. Yeah, I mean, there's just a guillotine is a horrible choke. You know, rear, rear naked is it, it, it can be unpleasant, and you can get obviously different variations of a rear naked. The ultimate ideal one is under the chin. That's the the the, the textbook version where actually. People call it a choke, but what you're actually doing is putting pressure on the two carotid arteries next to the neck to stop the blood flow to the brain. So it's not actually a choke. Uh, It's more of a stops the brain. You then get modified versions of a rear naked choke. Prime example being Khabib on Connor, where you've just got someone who's just got a world-class squeeze and they get it not technically perfect, but say across the chin, but they've just got such a squeeze on it, they still end up tapping. And if you watch the Connor Khabib one, that is, if, if you were to, to speak to a, a Henna Gracie, somebody like that, they would sit back and say, oh my God, that, that technique is poor. It's not under the neck. It's not textbook, but that just shows you how hard Khabib is 
and what a world-class squeeze he's got to get somebody to tap when it's across the jaw like that. But um, as you say, as good a guillotine as I've seen in a very, very long time, particularly given he was on the floor. He wasn't even standing. Normally for a, a guillotine to be that savage, you want the extra leverage of being someone standing up so that you can rip your arms up right into their neck. The guy was on the floor. So um, absolute hats off. And as you say, one of the best submissions I've seen in a long time. I think you were only within about one minute 30 or something like that. It was very, very quick in first round. Um, very, very quick finish, as the majority of the fights were. I think there was only one that went past the first round on the main card, which... We'll come on uh, to. Yeah, which was, was an interesting one. Um, was it Aliskarov and uh, Wally Alves in middleweight was the, the next fight? Real prospect. I mean, I'd, I'd heard a lot about, uh, again, Askilov, Askilov, Asilov. Aliskarov. Aliskarov. Um, I believe he came through Dana White's Contender Series. Of course, again, with the name, he's another Dagestani. And um, I'm sat there um, with my missus watching this one. I made her watch this. And I said to her, what's the one thing I've taught you? And she goes, Never bet against the Dagestanis. And uh, again, she was right. Apps, he looks a real prospect and is being slept on at middleweight. Give him a few, feed him a few more um, bigger names. I mean, Wilder Alves is a welterweight by trade and was stepping up. So maybe not the greatest test, but brutalised him. Absolutely brilliant combo against the fence and then melted him with a flying knee in the clinch. Melted is the perfect description for that because he quite literally, he just got punched enough. He looked like he was fine. And then all of a sudden he's getting a combination after that knee and he's like, yeah, gone. Legs gone. That was super impressive finishing power. And um, again, someone that the UFC should definitely be looking to build slowly, you know, build him up the rankings. I mean, he's got to sneak into the, the, the top 15. I would have thought at middleweight after that. So it'll be interesting to see who they pair him up with next. Because obviously middleweight, in my opinion, you've got featherweight, middleweight and lightweight are probably the most stacked divisions, aren't they? Um, you look at some of the other divisions, you know, like um, uh, what's the, the lowest weight? Uh, I'm struggling for some reason to think of the lowest weight, but there's not a lot of champion, uh, a lot of contenders why we've had... Moreno, uh, Figgy 4, the quadrilogy. There's not a lot of challenges there. The depth of competition is not great. Middleweight is one of those ones where there are some fucking murderers in there. So it will be very interesting to see who he's paired up against next. Uh, He also took, um, I believe, uh, performance of the night bonus for that as well. Um, I mean... Probably deserved it to be honest with you. Say that 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 is again, and I, I'd argue that the again probably as a jiu-jitsu purist, the the, the gear team was 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 up there. But that 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 knee, I mean, that's crumpling anybody. There's there's not a man alive that's taking that knee. What if I tell you that the gear team also took home performance of the night? I would say that's absolutely spot on and very very fair. And what if I told you that, because uh, we, we kind of skipped over him, but uh, Mikhaev on the undercard also took home a performance of the night bonus. 
But they usually do four, don't they? I think they they again depending on the level of the card, and this was a big one. They'll often give out at least two or three performance of the night. They used to call them, you know, submission of the night or care of the night. They seem to have evolved to performance of the night, and then they'll usually be a fight of the night where both fighters get the bonus. Yeah, I don't think they were a fight of the night. Um, if there was, you can pretty much guess which one it was. It definitely but, um, should have been Kamaya Usman. Um, yeah, I was going to say. Um, but um, next one, I suppose we've got to talk about just because the most controversial one, I would say. So Ankalev Walker. Um, what on earth is the doctor doing? He is you the star me. of the show tell in this event. Isn't um, tell, tell me what he's doing. Uh, no idea. It's a very strange one to see a no contest for an illegal knee because I'm, again, you tell me here because you've watched this far longer than I have. How, how often do you see a non-deliberate illegal knee like that? Because You don't get many deliberate. times that that happens anyway. He's against the cage and he's got a hand down. If you have a hand down, you are not allowed to hit somebody in the face with a kick or a punch. He knee his Johnny Walker's hand is on the floor very clearly against the cage, and Ankalev gives him a monstrous knee to the face. How Unintentionally, you could, of course. How you could call that unintentional? I have no idea. Now the 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 the, the bit and the the controversy as it's evolved, I've seen over the week is he clearly didn't look quite right, Walker, and. Not surprising when you've taken a knee like that to the face. And I think there were a number of factors in play here that caused this. So it looked to me like the doctor, again, I've watched this back a few times to try and work out what happened. And somebody said it looked like he said, where the doctor said, where are you? And it, that didn't look right to me. I'm no lip reading specialist. It looked like to me, he said, do you know what round it is? And he said, no. And that's what then caused the doctor to say, well, if you don't even know what round it is, then you can't continue. What you've got to factor in, Johnny Walker is Brazilian and English is not his first language. Does he understand what the doctor is even asking him? You know, what? why not get his coaching who or, or or somebody who can interpret to say and, and pass that back and forward to make sure because obviously he was furious. He, he clearly wanted to continue. It nearly resulted. Him. It nearly <laughs> resulted in a brawl. The, the the moment Dana gets in the cage, you know shit is getting real, and he clearly wanted to continue. And the most outrageous thing for me is that went down as a no contest when Johnny Walker should have got that as a win in terms of Ankle being disqualified. It was clearly a disqualification. I've no idea how it got turned into a no contest. I think it was absolutely outrageous. But again, that uh, doctor, for whatever reason, wanted to be he'll never, he'll never ever be a doctor in the UFC again. Got sl- slammed not. by Dana. Guarantee you, you know, again, one, one of those, like when you get these refs that make these appalling decisions, he won't be back. Uh, so that's one good thing um, to not have to worry about. But, um, I'd feel very, very uh, hard done by if I was Johnny Walker. The obvious thing with ones like that is run it back. Yeah. The run most annoying thing is I obviously called Johnny Walker to knock out Ankalev 
and clearly Johnny Walker were about to spark him a couple of seconds after it was uh, called as a non-contest. So we'll, we'll we'll just say I got that right because you know, basically, of course we will. Basically, will. Um, let's get to the co-main then. So one that I was quite looking forward to, and obviously we were watching. I was extremely excited to see how Chimaev did against Usman's defence. Immediately, Chimaev takes Usman down <laughs> with relative ease. So this is, as we'd said, the man with the highest making a mockery of this. Usman had the highest takedown defence in UFC history with 97%. Within a minute, gets put on his ass without any trouble whatsoever. And it didn't surprise me, if I'm perfectly honest. And I called this exactly, this is exactly what we, when we discussed the fight, I, I fully expected. Um, he was on him like a rash the whole round. The only thing I would say is I was very, very surprised to see two judges give that first round as a 10-8. Because although Kamaev was all over him like a rash, he didn't inflict a lot of damage. He had absolute control. There was no doubt. And he was, as you say, that 9-10 by a mile. I'm not sure in my book that's a 10-8. One of my questions was going to be, would you have given this as a 10-8 round? And do you agree the way that it was scored? The second question, after you've answered that, of course, would this have been a different story had it have been a five-round fight? Uh, very much so, because Usman was coming into his own. I think you could say Usman was progressing. But I don't know if a five-round fight would have helped in this situation, given Usman took it on 12 days' notice. I'd love to see that as a five-round fight with Usman with a, with a full camp. I think that could have been a, like a, a real upset and really completely smashed the hype train of Kamaev if... Usman had had a five round, uh, so if it was five rounds and it had a full camp, I don't think five rounds would have suited Usman on 12 days notice, if I'm honest with you. I think a fair score for me would have been 28-27. I, I don't personally see the first round as a 10-8. I think he, he probably won it quite comfortably. Like, no, probably about it. He definitely won it quite comfortably. I thought he lost the second. I thought Usman definitely took the, took the second. And I thought it was very close in the third, depending on what you prefer and what you want to go down the route of. Chimaev winning it, absolutely acceptable. No problem whatsoever. Winning it by a 10-8 round and a 10-9 round, not for me. Chimaev kind of stole it, didn't he? That he wasn't doing that well. But uh, second round, I absolutely agree, was a 10-9 Usman. And Usman was looking good on the feet, landing the harder strikes, uh, doing, doing far better than people gave him credit for. Um, and I liked the way that he was fainting takedowns. So if you noticed a lot of times he was dropping to faint takedowns to keep Kamaev on his feet thinking, shit, is he going to take me down? And then standing up to, to, to punch. I think ultimately what clinched it for Kamaev was the takedown in the third round, um, where it was relatively late on. Again, he didn't inflict a huge amount of damage with that takedown. He kind of laid and prayed on him. But in terms of the judges' scorecards, you can quite easily see. But I would absolutely agree with you. 29-28 would have been my scoring of it to Kamaev. 
But if I'm completely honest, Usman comes out of that with more credit to me than Kamayev does. I was super impressed with Usman, higher weight against that guy that and on 12 days notice. And as you say, you run that back with Usman with a full training camp and at five rounds, we could have been talking a very, very different conversation here. Just realised, I think I said 28-27 would have been a good score. How we would have got there, I don't know. So we'll ignore me yeah, saying tw- that. 29-28 is what it should be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. The draw, out of curiosity, which is the, do we know what the, the, the judge who scored it as a draw actually gave it? Did he give 10-9, 10-9, and then 9-9? Uh, I did see the cards, but I can't say I've got them in front of me. Um... It's got to be that, hasn't it? There's got no way that you can give Usman the first round or a draw. There's no way that you can give Chimaev the second round or draw. So it's got to be going into it level and then a draw in last, I would assume. But I, 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 can, you give the, can you give the last round as a draw? No, I thought Chimaev took Chimaev, it. Just because, Chimaev like, took so it because of the, took it down. again took him took him down and and, and the control. So uh, again, it just comes back to that point. And again, it's the same as VAR, and we sound like boring. Fuck it. Well, I'm an old man. You're not. So don't old, call me old. <laughs> saying the same shit over and over again. When are we going to get some better judges who understand? Like to me, a judge. I, I wouldn't go quite as far to say should have had an MMA, an, an, an MMA fight, but I would want certain levels of qualifications for a judge. I don't think a judge should be able to be a judge without being at least a blue or a purple belt at jiu-jitsu so that they understand the positions. They understand what's going on when people are getting taken down, when they're being threatened, what that, you know, whether there's a damage there, whether they're controlling, uh, you know, there are certain things like that to me. These, these are, and we, we, we've said it again, they're boxing judges that have probably taken some piss poor course on MMA with no experience whatsoever. And they just sometimes look so out of their depth. It's embarrassing for the sport. And Dana gets mad at it. But to me, Dane, it's within Dana's power. I know we talked about it again. It's the athletic commissions that provide the judges, not the UFC. But the UFC have the power to say, right, every single athletic commission, name me your 10 judges that you are going to put forward. And we will put them on a course where they have to be put on their ass and get out of a, you know, get out of a guillotine. They have to be tried to be rear naked choked. They have to be leg kicked. They have to be put against the cage. They need to be put in these real life situations so they can have a proper understanding of what is going on to be able to judge it fairly. So it acted as a a middleweight title eliminator. So Chimaev, obviously, winner. Chimaev Strickland, who wins? If you'd asked me before the fight, I would have said Chimaev. I think his wrestling is too much for even for Strickland. But having watched that and seen the holes in his game and the way that Usman was was piecing him up on the feet in the second round, I'm going to go against the grain here and say if Sean Strickland now does nothing but work on his takedown defence, he wins easily. 
So, on that note, because we have a lot of Strickland mm-hmm. fans who listen to this, um, obviously we know Luke, one of my friends, is uh, a massive advocate for Sean Strickland. I'm pretty sure he's got like pictures of him, posters of him in his uh, bedroom. Gay. If, <laughs> if, if Strickland takes down Chimaev, so knocks him out, where does Strickland stand then in general with the UFC? If he halts this hype train, which has obviously been significantly dented by Usman, do people start looking at him and thinking, hang on a minute, this guy's the real deal? Because he still gets treated by by the majority of people as a bit of a joke, doesn't he? Obviously, he took out Adesanya, and that's a fantastic result for him. He's the champion. But I think a lot of people still underrate him. Absolutely. I mean, his his persona doesn't help that. I think that would be fair to say that by coming out and saying some of the ridiculous shit like women shouldn't vote and other comments he's made, he doesn't exactly win himself many fans outside of hardcore MMA uh, watchers. He um, spars the most out of any active UFC fighter. That's been proved. His main training is sparring because... Um, you know, ultimately, a fight is a fight. The one for me that is lurking in the background, and I keep, I, I don't know what he's done to Dana because I get the feeling he must have done something. And I think people are sleeping on his ability. Is Drukus, uh, Drukus to me, uh, Duplessis? That motherfucker is huge. He how he makes middleweight, I have no idea. He keeps getting promised the next fight. He beat Whitaker quite handily, who's obviously no joke, um, and then just keeps seeming to get bounced down the line. But he's the sleeper that it feels like nobody really wants. A bit like a few years ago, Usman in the welterweight division. No one want Usman. It was really hard to get Usman a fight because everybody knew what he was going to do to you. This was before he suddenly got his his, his his boxing going. He was going to take you down. He was going to beat you up and lay and prey on you. And you weren't going to beat him. And I feel really sorry for Duplessis because I think he's an absolutely amazing fighter. And for me, he should be the next challenger above Chimaev based on that performance. And that's the fight I would much rather see would be Strickland Duplessis. Let's talk about it then. Main event. Oh, Your boy got so smashed. I'm so disappointed. Not not in him, not in his performance. We said, didn't we, going into it, that it was very much uh, a miracle opportunity. If he'd have taken it, it would have been one of the greatest. But everything was against him. Very, In all honesty, very, very impressive from Islam. Very, very impressive. You look at that and you think, yeah, he, he is definitely up there as one of the best in the UFC, if not the best at the moment. I think one of the things I would say that appeared to me was the adjustments Islam had made in his game from the previous fight. Now, I know he's only take, he's taking this on 12 days notice as well. So, you know, you've got to give a factor that in that he's not known that he's going to be fighting um, uh, Volk for, you know, uh, through for a whole camp and he's preparing for... Uh, a very different fighter in Oliveira who can strike, but is perhaps got the best applicable jiu-jitsu to MMA. Arguably, I would I would personally argue the best MMA jiu-jitsu across all divisions. 
you go to the even you know in Islam's game is grappling grappling with 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 Oliveira is a very very dangerous game he has one of the nastiest guards you will ever see he can submit you from any position top or bottom so it's a big change i was super impressed with um Islam's changes in terms of his striking so for example, he's known, obviously, as a grappler. Ultimately, he's a Khabib disciple in terms of taking him down. He was throwing a lot of body kicks, if you noticed. Um, uh, uh, started off with a few teeps, which I really like, which for the um, bet, even you don't know what a teep is, let alone maybe some of our uninitiated um listeners but a teep is a front kick which is effectively a kickboxing jab with your foot so he's throwing teeps kick out front to keep him away he's throwing body shots and there is no doubt for me if you look at the finish because of the number of body shots he'd thrown with his kicks Volk is ducking down because he's expecting a body kick and Islam goes high and hits him in the head kick I thought that was an incredible... I could be giving Islam too much credit here and he might have just got a lucky strike and Volk ducked into it. I saw that as an incredible evolution of Volk in a striking game. And I'm going to say it, and this sounds crazy, but easily now, pound for pound number one, goes above John Jones. And I think if he carries on like this, not only does he take champ champ status and take welterweight, but he surpasses Khabib and is arguably the new goat in the conversation, at least. Far too early, far far too early to be discussing that. Um, Three or I, four if... fights down the road, it's a different story. Yeah, uh, two, I'm, I'm not saying he's the goat now. I'm, 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 let me make that clear. I'm certainly not saying that. He carries on on the trajectory the learning path that he's on and fighting the calibre of people and beating them in the manner that he's beating him, he is instantly in that discussion in three or fights, three or four more fights more time. We love our boy, Leon. He is a horrendous matchup for Edwards. I would not in a million years want to see Edwards fight Islam at well away for his title. Question for you. With regards to the finish, now obviously it's, it's a head kick. He's out almost immediately. I'm pretty sure the head, the actual head kick knocks him out. Then gets finished by the, the the punches. Are they in the back of his head? Um, I mean, that hammer fists aren't they? Technically, is what they're called. I mean, you you you'd said to me the point earlier, didn't you, in the gym about was it um, technically were they ten six? Uh, sorry, 10, 12, 12 punches. That's elbows. Not 12, 10, 12, six. only t- t- 10, tw- 10, six is the fuck I'm talking about. I've had too many runs. <laughs> um, t- 10, uh, six, 12 elbows are illegal, which is an elbow directly down. When it gets to that hammer fist stage, I mean, he was out anyway. I, He's I, out. I think, He's I think out. you can argue that there was a couple that maybe hit him on the back of the head. Yeah. But He's not recovering from that, is he? Split his eye right open, which was the more concerning thing for me. It didn't look a horrendous cut, but that's going to need stitches. And does that throw uh, Tapura at 297 into doubt 
because of the stitches he's going to need and the time to recover for that wound uh, to heal, which was my big concern all along with this. Just looking as well, just going back to what you said, did you say Islam's pound for pound number one? Yeah, promoted above John Jones. It's number two. Is he? Yeah, it's number two. John Jones is still number one. Crazy. For me, he's got, I, I'd put him at number one personally now. Um, yeah, I mean, it was discussed. The reason I ask about the back of the head is it was discussed by Bispin and Anthony Smith um, on their. Have they got a podcast? Is it like they do? Uh, it's Bisping's podcast, but yeah, it's Bis- Bisping's podcast. But for some reason, Anthony Smith has suddenly got his way into it. Um, but <laughs> they, they were talking about it, and they were essentially saying the rule isn't that you can't punch someone in the back of the head or you can't hit someone in the back of the head. It's that you can't target the back of the head. So if you're looking to punch someone and they're, it's a wild example, but they swivel round before that your fist connects with their face and then show the back of the head, that's not illegal because you've tried to punch him in the face. So with Volk being absolutely out, and he was, he was knocked out by the kick, his head's pinballing all over the place. I, I feel like the argument isn't really valid as much as, and you know what I'm well, like. You I'm brought biased, up, but, you're the one trying to make the argument. Not me. No, I'm just saying it's it's quite a bit. <laughs> I'm not saying you're arguing. I'm saying the argument that people have made on uh, social media. A lot of people have come to Volk's aid, and I can understand why big Volk fans like myself will try to look for reasoning. Say, oh no, it should have been stopped in terms of should have had a point deducted. He should have had time to uh, recover. That's bullshit, he were out. man. He were I, I mean, I, I haven't seen that person. I've got this. I haven't seen that. Um... There's a bit of a backlash. Backlash, yeah. but. Anyone who's trying to say that has not been watching the fight properly. Uh, he wasn't, no matter what, if let's say they'd given him five minutes to recover, how else do you think that, how how else do you think that would have gone down? Exactly McGregor the said, same it. Way. McGregor said uh, it's, I think he said something on, I'm still not calling it X, someone on Twitter along the lines of, it's a difficult sport to ref, but there were definitely grounds for it 100%. And I would have loved to have seen it happen in terms of, fight gets paused and he gets a point taken off him but it's for me he's out and it's done it's a brilliant I don't think it was I I don't feel again going back to that point of the clearly unintentional inverted commas knee they weren't intentional punches to the back of the head they were just hammer fists because he was down on the floor and Volk might have moved his head to try and defend it forward They, they that, it's not even a remote argument for me. I love Volk. I'm, don't get me wrong. You, you, you're kind of painting me in a picture here that I'm a Volk hater and I'm glad it happened. I would have. I wanted Volk to win that more than Islam by any day because I wanted the greatness and that, that man to achieve it if there's ever somebody that should. But I don't see a way back for a third fight for a very, very long time now. No, not not for me, and I don't think he should. The, the comments that he made afterwards were very worrying, and anyone who has suffered from any sort of mental health issue before, certainly sportsmen, I know there's, there's quite a lot being made about how Tyson Fury dealt with it, depression, trying to keep yourself occupied. They were worrying because that's the type of thing that a fighter who has been rocked and whose confidence has been rocked comes out and openly says. Now, he obviously has been dealing with these demons for quite a number of, of months, if not years, on his own or in his own manner. For him to start speaking publicly about it, he's not making excuses. What he is doing, however, is revealing that actually 
maybe there's something not quite right here. And that makes you wonder, is the fight against Sapura in January with this fight in the back of his mind and with this finish in the back of the mind a good idea? See, I didn't see it quite the same way. I, I, I think, for me, he was more saying along the lines of, I'm one of the... It, it, it was slightly Tyson Fury-esque, if you've watched At Home with the Tysons, which I know you have after my high uh, review of it, where he was saying, look, if I'm not fighting, I've got nothing to put my energy into, I go crazy. And what Volk, I think his exact words were saying is, if I'm sat on the couch, I go mad. I need to be training for something. I need to have something to be working towards. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm frustrated. My mind wanders. It didn't feel like he was quite addressing or suggesting that he suffered from the same level of mental health problems as um, as as Fury. And it didn't feel like he was making an excuse either. I think he was just making the point, the, the, the point that came over to me, keep me active. I want to keep fighting. I need to keep this going. And the way that I read that, maybe wrongly or rightly, was don't fucking take me off the card against Japura on 297. I still want to make that fight. I stepped up on short notice to help you out, but I need the grind. I need to get up every day. I need to be in the gym or I go crazy. I need something to work towards. So I saw it in a slightly different manner, maybe, than you're suggesting. I just think when you hear things like that, I don't necessarily disagree what you're saying, but as much as we like to disagree, I feel like that type of post-event presser, two things. If I'm Tapura, I'm saying, get me that fight immediately. This guy has suffered a potential concussion. He looks vulnerable. He looks like there's an issue there. Let me take him on. I'll take him out. And his confidence will be sky high on that. The second part of it, when he's discussing the fact that, I think he says at one point, I've got a beautiful family at home and I should enjoy spending time with them, but but I can't. That's worrying to me. That's someone who, yeah, don't get me wrong, he's a fighting champion. He loves the, the grind. He wants to continue with it. But it sounds like he feels like that's all that he's got in life. And if he doesn't have that in life, he starts to go a bit crazy. He's fighting whatever demons he's got in his mind. And if he has to be in camp consistently, eventually you'll get to a point where, like with Tyson Fury, you'll drive yourself mental. And yeah, you'll get to you, you have to build. And this is definitely something, again, that the UFC could put a training program in place. There's a lot of avenues for fighters now as they get towards the end of their career that they could work towards. There's the media there's coaching, there's lots of other ways they can stay involved in the sport without going mad like that, uh, you know, to have something to work towards and get themselves ready. Like footballers, look at footballers. Footballers are often the same, aren't they? How many footballers go bankrupt and end up as alcoholics or gambling addicts after their career is over? Because it's all been about that short period of time of their life till 35. And then all of a sudden... They're sat on their ass with nothing to do. They haven't really thought ahead of the future. The guys that have got, that are really switched on, know what they're going to do. A good example, Bisping, Paul Felder, you know, they could see their careers were coming to an end and they started to move toward broadcasting. 
You know, there's plenty of opportunity. The UFC are very, very generous to former fighters like that. They will give them opportunities to DC, look to build their careers and do other things. There's podcasts. There's, who doesn't want to hear someone like Volk talk about his life, his struggles, his things like that. So I, I just feel that sometimes to be a champion like that, you need to have 100% focus. But there becomes a point as you get towards the end of your career that you need to start to slightly diversify that focus to say, what am I going to do when this does come to an end? Because inevitably it will do. And let's be fair, the other thing that we're, we're missing out on here, just take us. We have normal jobs. We fucking hate losing. How much do we hate when we lose in anything? And that man has just lost. That Because you're young, (laughs) I'll let you get aware of that. You you, you have plenty of losses to come in your career. But real champions want to win all the time. That man, you're interviewing him just after he's lost. You've got to take that into account as well. Imagine how deflated he is. He's he's at rock bottom mentally. So can you take what he said fully into account at that point? He's absolutely gutted. He's bummed out. He's used to smashing everybody. And you've caught him at his lowest moment. So I feel like there has to be a little bit of context added around that as well that it maybe isn't quite as serious as it seemed to me. Sahudo did, he's got a, a YouTube channel. He has, ironically, as we're just saying there, every fighter seems to have these sort of outlets at the moment. He's been speaking about Volk, and I think the phrase that he used is that Volk should humble himself. Now, on the face of it, and a lot of outlets and news outlets have been writing about it saying, Sahudo says Volk should humble himself. And you're like, you what? That's... What's he saying that for? Why is he insulting him? Do you know the what? Actual... I'm going to interrupt you here. Fuck Sahujo. King of cringe. <laughs> what the fuck did that prick ever do? Wait for Wouldn't it. Wouldn't even but... scratch. If they thought Volkanovsky would beat the living fuck out of him. So he should fucking check himself and shut the fuck up, chiming in on things that he hasn't got a fucking clue about. You've just proved my point because the exact thing that I was just going to say is a lot of people have jumped on that and thought, what's he taking the piss out of him for? What's he doing that for? out of order i've had a look at what the actual quote was he essentially is saying and i don't necessarily disagree with him that volkanovsky should take his time shouldn't be in a rush if he was volkanovsky he's saying i would take six months out i'd be properly prepared for my next fight i wouldn't be immediately jumping into a january february fight against sapura who's got power he's not necessarily completely um a walkover or anything like that if sapura catches volk as we've seen volk can now get knocked out it's about his legacy. It's about his preparation. It shouldn't be about ego and pride. And, the, you know, he's just lost the 155 pound strap that he really wanted. So the last thing that you want to do is go back to 145 and lose that again. It's very, very difficult. And I just don't want him to go into a spiral. And we look we at his teammate. Look at his teammate. Yeah. Te- his teammate has taken the perfect opportunity and listened to the advice that has been given, which is Izzy. Izzy's taken a couple of knockouts. He's fought. In, Vol, him and Volk are probably the most active champions in the UFC over the last two years. I would argue if you actually brought up the stats of how many main events they fought, that has a burden on you. I remember Usman. When Usman lost 
to Edwards, he actually said, do you know what? It's a relief. The pressure, the media, all the attention that comes in fight week with being a champion takes a toll on you. And to have that removed and actually a chance to regroup and maybe train without that. So I absolutely agree. And I think Volk should take a bit of time off. Um, he knows his body better than anyone else. It's his life. If he wants to fight Tapura at 297 and smash him and beat, beat the fuck out of him, which personally I still think he would do, then he should do it. But I think once you've had a couple of knockouts like that, and particularly a bad one with the head kick, you should be taking some time off. You should take six months out. You should let your body recover. And I think Izzy is doing exact. Izzy has is, is, is listened to the criticism, if you can call that, or comments and the feedback that the MMA community is saying. Of Look, dude, you, you've done more than enough for the sport that you should do. Chill out, man. Take some time. Regroup. Go back to the drawing board. Get your chin back. Come back and re-establish yourself as one of the greatest. And I couldn't disagree that that the same applies to Volk. Let's end our UFC section, considering we've talked about my broken heart, on your potential broken heart. Just out with a severe shoulder injury. Um, <laughs> obviously, no one could see this, but you've got your head in your hands, you're rubbing your eyes, tears flowing. Um, yeah, out of 295, with a shoulder injury, very, very late. Um, you've got Prohaska and Pereira promoted to the, the main fight and Aspinall and Pavlovich has been added as an interim heavyweight title fight. Um, Stipe seems to be, or Stipe, I don't know how to pronounce it, seems to have been removed from the roster. What's happening? I can't, I can't lie to you. I nearly shed a tear on this one because this was the one one night. So we had... It's been a bit of a crazy week at work. The other night, I just couldn't sleep. My missus has gone on a hen do and I made her sleep in the other bed so that she wouldn't wake me up when she fucked off at half two. She still woke me up at half two and I couldn't get back to sleep. So gogging style, 4.30 in the morning, I was like, fuck it. I'm getting up. I'm fucking working out. I'm going to do my notes for the podcast. Work out. Stick um you know a bit of twitter on just to catch up on things and i suddenly see the announcement and you probably didn't thank me given that i text you at something like 20 past five like what the fuck jones is out and it's eight months and i was just like no and i just could not believe it i was i was heartbroken and i I, i'll read it to you because as i said it, it was almost scary the, the weirdness of it. So I, I, I saw that. I, I prepare my notes. So my exact fight is: Will we ever see see John Jones Jones fight again? Eight months out, and does he maybe retire? If he does, he's the Eden Hazard of the MMA world, given the the lack of fights in his athletic prime over the last few years. He's only fought four fights since March 2019. And it brings his GOAT status into question. Stipe's off the card. And I think he clearly wanted John Jones as his last fight. Maybe probably to win. And whatever happened, I think Stipe was going to retire. Will either men fight again? And my exact point was probably not. Next thing, I finish my workout. I go on Twitter. And what's the picture I sent you? 
UFC roster watch, Stipe removed. And I was like, couldn't have called it more spot on than that. It's a strange one because, and we discussed this obviously previously, not necessarily on, on the pod, but there's nothing to stop him from getting re-added. It might be that that is something that happens a bit further down the line. I certainly agree with you. For me, I think this would have been a potential double retirement fight. I don't think John Jones want any, or wants anything of Pavlovich, and he certainly doesn't want anything of Aspinall when Aspinall knocks out Pavlovich at 295. Um, we'll come on to that. Yeah. And it's. Do we now see a delay of John Jones returning? And do the UFC try to delay 300 to accommodate for his return? We've had a look at the events, haven't we, in terms of what's booked in. I think 297 was due to be January, February, and that's in Toronto. And that's when, obviously, Volk and Tapura are supposed to be fighting for the title. If we're saying 297 is that early in the year, three more numbered cards you've got to the, the centenary card. Can you really delay that by enough time to get John Jones on that card? And is it a feasible way? Is it feasible to ask other fighters to wait until that? Because John Jones has to be on the centenary card, doesn't he? He has to be. He has to be, but I don't... I, again, I don't know the details. I'm no fucking medical expert. Eight months out is what I've read. There's plenty of fighters that will um, recover quicker. Um, you know, uh, and again, Jones sadly is not quite in his prime that he used to be. I think he's 34 now, so he's getting on a bit. But you would think the the, the UFC would want to delay that. Now, the only thing I would say is the way that the UFC is evolving at the moment, and particularly with John Jones' lack of activity, I think you could argue there are other stars that they might well pin 300 on. Connor is 100% there, not even a doubt. O'Malley has to be the next one on there for me in terms of star power. Islam, after that, will be on there. Them three, that's that's three big boys that you could probably try to avoid or or, or to to make up for the for the lack of John Jones. But I think there's only so far you can push three hundred back, depending on John Jones's recovery. So um does he? The big question is, he wanted Stipe for his legacy, i.e. Stipe technically, I don't think, I certainly don't agree with this, but technically and statistically, Stipe is the greatest MMA heavyweight ever. Most UFC defences at heavyweight. So on that stat alone, he's the greatest heavyweight of the UFC. John Jones wanted to beat him for his legacy so that he then had beaten the best ever at heavyweight and he had the longest run, unbeaten run ever at light heavyweight. Does he want Pavlovich or Aspinall, which we'll come on to, two young guns, fucking savage power, hungry as fuck? I'm not so sure he does. So no chance. I, Absolutely no I, chance. I... I, I could definitely see Jones being done. And I think it would depend. Now, do they? The, the, the problem you've got is Jones is the champ. The fight between Pavlovich and Aspinall, which again we'll come on to, is for the interim. What you can't then do is, let's say, bring back Stipe Jones 
as a non-title fight because you can't have the champion who's injured not fighting the interim champion that's been created whilst he's out. So Stipe, the only chance of Stipe Jones now would be Jones comes back, beats the winner of Pavlovich Aspinall, then takes on Stipe. Now, if he does that, he is the greatest of all time, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, but it just won't happen. So I I fear we've lost him. And it's such a shame because of his out of out of cage discretions uh, that, of course, such a delay. The amount of time he took to bulk up to heavyweight to get to that point. So close to the fight as well. And I mean, I saw the foot. I mean, you ironically, I sent you the video with Dana, but I didn't even listen to it. But I think in the video, it shows the injury. It's completely innocuous, isn't it? It's not like it's they're going at it really hard. It's a pretty kind of standard grappling um, point that he just takes down. Um, and then he just feels it, doesn't he? He just seems to grab onto the the shoulder and you just think it is it's, it's complete i'm sure they do that every day in training and every day in sparring and it doesn't get anywhere near as severe as that and the outcome is nowhere near as severe as that either but is it just the look of john jones uh, and like you said the inactivity that he's he's been a victim of and now obviously he's in a position where will he ever come back um only only time will tell who let's says... talk about talk about yeah. We're going to say let's talk about Aspinall um, and Pavlovich then because I think we've got different opinions on this. Surprise, surprise. So we, we did a bit of research, didn't we? After this one, I um, I said to you they're going to stand and bang. You're you're correct me if I'm wrong, and by all means tell me if I've, I've got this wrong. You said to me there is no way Aspinall is going to stand and bang with Pavlovich. Pavlovich has the most power for a long time I've seen. And I would say he is the second hardest puncher I've ever seen at heavyweight after Ngannou. My argument is Aspinall is not going to stand and bang with him punching wise. Aspinall is a heroic kickboxer and is going to stand and smash away at the legs of Pavlovich to compromise him in terms of him having the power to then use that boxing going forward. So I think it will start as a stand-up fight. One thing we learned this week when we were having our back-and-forth discussion uh, in the office, which um, I slept on and full fucking play to him, I had no idea Aspinall was a black belt. And we, we, we did a bit of Googling. We can't find any trace of... Pavlovich having any belt whatsoever, but he is Russian, so I cannot suspect for a second that he doesn't have at least some kind of sambo background, which is the Russian equivalent of jiu-jitsu. Now, he might not be a black belt, he might not be whatever, but he's going to be able to grapple. I think he's a black belt. I think from what I saw on very reputable site Reddit, there was that guy who had said that Pavlovich was the next up and coming thing, and that was before. Oh, I before he got Ubering. knocked out by Uberim. Um, yeah, so yeah. But he, he said he was a black belt. So at we're going on. Or it's a, at Sambo. 
BJJ. Right. Okay. So, so we'll see. But he, he he has said Aspinall that he isn't going to stand and bang. So funnily enough, after we had that conversation, he did one of the I think it was Bet Three Six Five. He did a little interview with them that essentially said, "I'm smarter than these people that have fought him before. There's absolutely no way that I'm going to stand in front of him and allow him to just punch my head off." Um, which I, I'll be honest, Aspinall has got the power to take out Pavlovich, but I wouldn't risk it. I mean, he has, anyway. and look at look at some of the videos you showed me. So you were showing me videos of uh, Aspinall leg kicking Eddie Hall, world's strongest man, with an eight inch. Would you guess that? That be about eight ten inch pad yeah. on his yeah. leg at fifty percent, and Eddie fucking Hall is hardly able to walk. Imagine Aspinall hits Pavlovich with two or three of those in the first round. That's like three baseball bats to your leg. I can tell you now, Pavlovich is not going to be able to throw those power shots that he's talking about if he takes two or three of those leg kicks in the first round in any way, shape or form. I've said it for years, leg kicks completely change the reflection of a fight. Um, And Aspinall has monstrously thick thighs. He's a brutal kickboxer. And the route to victory for me is slow him down on the feet with the kicks, then take him down and grapple him. I think because he's too grapple- fast for him as well. I think he's too fast for Pavlovich. I think if if you stand in front of Pavlovich and let him just punch you in the head, as the majority of fighters have done, you're going to get sparked because his power, is, yeah, his, his power is unrivaled at the moment in that division for me. But like you say, the leg kicks, the speed, you get him worn out and you take him down. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him submit him. And that would be the biggest thing for me. I, I get that everyone wants to see a knockout and everyone wants to see him just spark out Pavlovich if that's what they want and if, in terms of if they want an Aspinall win. But I think he can submit him. I, I think he can take him down, wear him out and just submit him. And, and that is one of the things that people do sleep on in MMA is the difference in um, gas tank the effect on your gas tank of grappling as opposed to boxing. Standing and fighting, throwing punches is one thing for two, you know, it's going to be a title fight, so it's going to be five rounds. That's one thing. The moment you get taken down and you're grappling and you're Islam style or you're Khabib and you're wrestling and you're fighting off your back, that is a whole different ball game in terms of the effect and the drain it has on your gas tank. So again, if Aspinall is being clever, he wears out Pavlovich because I don't think Pavlovich has a particularly deep gas tank. He's had six first round finishes, so he's not been tested in those deeper waters. So the key for Aspinall, survive the first round, kick him in the fucking leg a few times to, to, to sap some of that power and that standing leg ability to throw the punches and then look to grapple the fuck out of him and use his BJJ skills. That is the, that if I, again, I'm not a bit. I'm not a, an MMA coach. I'm not going to profess to be. That's the route to victory. Don't want to talk about football this week either. I feel like everything is is completely against me results wise this week. Um, obviously, Paul Bolt. bummed by Stoke. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a highlight of your week, isn't it? A wet, windy Wednesday night in Stoke. It turns out that Patrick Bamford indeed cannot do it. Thank you. Um, oh, you how... atrocious, atrocious footballer. 
Oh, how the fortunes have changed, Dave, eh, from last year, enjoying Saturdays in the Premier League. Now you've I got enjoy my Saturdays in Premier League. Wednesday Premier night League. down at fucking Stoke and getting bummed on own goals. Unbelievable. To be fair, they weren't at the races, Leeds, um, the entire game. They were pretty poor starting off. He made three or four changes, took some of them out of the team. No idea why. I'm assuming it's just a rest. And then Gruev made his full debut, which is a a centre midfielder who I I thought... How did he play, by the way? Is that the chap came from Germany? Yeah, Highly rated, but I saw he hadn't had much of a... a Look in with Ampadu and... um, Get rid of him. Sell him. Was he? Shit. (laughs) No, he's only played one game, and it's difficult to judge him on one game, but he was completely and utterly absent. He didn't do anything... He had, at one point, that showed the stats, made the third least amount of touches on the pitch. He's a centre midfielder. Not good as he... a centre mid. No, yeah, that, that's not. atrocious. You expect um, that from Bamford, but... <laughs> well, and then obviously, despite the game not necessarily going our way, makes some subs, brings on Lord Bamford himself. Bamford wins a penalty. It's all Rooters' fault, to be honest. He did absolutely fantastic. A little bit of a pirouette and the plays he made. All you've got to do is score the penalty. Somerville picks it up, Bamford walks over, no, no, it's mine, I'm taking it, blast it over at bar, and then I think four minutes later, an own goal, which is one of the most unlucky own goals. It's where corner comes in, they get an head on it, bounces off crossbar, and smacks striking face and goes in, and you're just like, come on, give us a rest here. But Yeah, but I mean, we, we, had a, we had a little dispute on this one, didn't we? For me, not taking away from Bamford missing the penalty, but he's missed three in a row, and he scored five out of ten. Stats you gave me. I'm not going to pretend I didn't know those. But that's up to the manager. When you see someone, Bamford, coming on and taking the ball off, Fark needs to be shouting, fuck you. What the fuck are you doing? That, that is, a, that is a, a lapse by the manager all over for me. That is the manager's fault, not Bamford's. Farker should be stepping in and, and saying, no, your recent record is not good enough. We have other penalty takers. I'm not having that, that that's not the manager's fault. I think it's your captain. Um, and I'd go back to that. I know this is the, the thing that we were discussing. I think your captain has to step in. And this captain on the, the, the night was strike. You've got to approach him and say, not what are you doing, mate? Just giving the ball back. Don't get involved in this. Enzo Fernandez did it fantastically. I think Chelsea had a penalty quite recently. And it was Sterling and Palmer had a little bit of a, a spat about it. And Fernandez walks up, says, no, he's taking the penalty. Go away, Sterling. He takes the penalty, scores it. That's what should have happened. It was an atrocious penalty. Everyone, every single person watching that who knows anything about Patrick Bamford knows that he's missing it. He's missed his last three now, as you say. The three penalties he's missed, one against Arsenal, where it was 1-0 to them, and he could have scored an equaliser. We lost. Uh, one where we were 1-0 up against Newcastle late in the last season. It would have made it 2-0. We would have potentially got a good three points. We ended up drawing that game. We got a last-minute equaliser. Obviously, we don't need to talk about what happened with Leicester, where he misses the open goal, which would have won us that game at the end of the season. And then he loses another because of a stupid penalty that probably wins us the game if you go 1-0 up at that point. So it's just I'm going to disagree. I'm, again, I know we have the. I'm just going to disagree with you all day on this. Your captain is not your boss. Captain is captain is your captain. He is your leader on the field. That's not your boss. 
Your manager is your boss. The manager should be stepping in there and saying no. And there should be a clear delineation before a game happens of what happens if we get a penalty. Who is the chosen taker? This is number one. If he's off, it's number two. I personally, and maybe I'm being harsh here, I feel that screams a lack of preparation on Leeds' part. That has to be something that is sorted out, particularly with the way we are with VAR now. More penalties were seen. That is Farker's job. Farker needs to lay out. Somerville, you're my number one. If you're off, so-and-so, you're not my number two. And I don't think the captain has anything, any business whatsoever involved in this. It's the manager. Because if my captain came, not being funny, today is an example. I told you to do something. What did you do? Completely fucking ignore me. So exactly. what? why would you listen to your captain? I'm your captain at work. You didn't fucking listen to me. So um, Technically, you're my boss and I didn't listen to you. So actually, you've just disproved your own point. <laughs> Well, well, just prove that you're a shit worker. But um, yeah, for me, it has to be. It's Farker's fault. Farker needs that. That needs, particularly now. And I get. I'm sure it will be addressed given the media coverage. There needs to be a very clear delineation. You're number one. You're number two. You're number three. That's it. No, no messing around. Don't give a fuck if you come on and you want to take it, Bamford. Tough shit. So and so's our number one. It's basically for me, so Peru is number one, and we knew that going into it, he was off the pitch. Number two, let's say Somerville. Number three, you go down everyone. You know, number 10 should be a keeper. Number 11 should be someone from the stand. Number 12 should be someone from the kitchen. Number 13 should be the guy who sells magazines outside Ellen Road. And then if all else fails, number 14, Bamford could take it. But he should be absolutely nowhere near it. He is a player who has no confidence. He's a player who hasn't scored since, I think, Archie Gray took his A-levels based on everything that's ongoing. Um, it's Another just one for nonsense. me, again, look at just general points here of what I would call general footballing points. I'm not a massive fan of a sub taking a penalty. They've come on. They haven't necessarily got their touch. They haven't been involved in the whole game. I want. I don't want a substitute. You, you could argue they're fresher, but I don't want a substitute taking a penalty. I want someone who's been involved in the whole game. It's not exactly like it's the most um, energetic or um, energy-consuming thing to take a penalty. So it, the fact that someone's been on the pitch or just come on should have no impact on it. I, I, I blame Farker. I, 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 this for me, it, it's Farker's fault. He that he, he there should be a very clear one, two, three. He hasn't laid that down. I have no doubt he will rectify that given the shit that's happened now. So it won't be an issue going forward. But Bamford should never be taking a penalty again. Yeah, and the big big problem, regardless of whether it's certified going forward, is that Leeds lose three potential points and Ipswich and Leicester gain three points. So that gap has now opened up to nine points to second with a game in hand. And it's massively detrimental. I appreciate you don't look... But you're still third. I, I was shocked. I was shocked you're still third. I know you don't want... We, we don't really want um, playoffs for Leeds. We want, you know, second... Leicester, as I said to you in the week, they're out of it for me. You know, you, you can't... No one's catching Leicester. That they're, they're, You might as well give them the title now. 
Ipswich, we both agree pretty strongly that they will drop off. They're, they are continuing at the moment to carry on, but there will be uh, a drop off at some point. So you need to capitalise on that. As Meg, give credit, throw it out to your fiance, pointed out, you can have three in the championship, you can have three games in a week, particularly you come around Christmas. Ipswich, fuck those three games up. You win those three games, that's nine points. Bang, you're right back in it. So I don't think there's any need to panic for Leeds at the moment. And given the fact that they don't seem to have been playing particularly well for the season, I would say to be in third is is is, is a result, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly have levels to go upwards and to get better because, like you say, I mean, the game on Wednesday were atrocious. They were really, really poor. But it was after quite a number of changes. Got the chance to rectify it in a West Yorkshire derby at the weekend against Huddersfield. So hopefully it'll be a, a bit of a route to get people back on side. But hopefully also Bamford doesn't get anywhere near the, the pitch because I feel like you're going to create an atmosphere there where even if he comes on as a sub, because he's definitely not going to start, you're going to have half the crowd trying to sing his name and get behind him. Inevitably, it's a half 12 kickoff on a Saturday. People are going to be quite pissed before going into it. They'll be starting at nine, ten o'clock and you're going to get people who dissent and people who boo him and people who shout at him, etc., etc. So I, I personally would try to avoid playing him. I mean, start. I think they should keep him a little bit wrapped in cotton wool at the moment. I mean, again, he, he, he took some serious shit last season when all this happened. Um, we know this and I don't think I'm saying anything particularly controversial uh, that Ellen Road is one of the most toxic grounds Um You know, you get the crowd against you. The game's not going well. Um, Certainly from probably the game, the the teams that I've been to and visited, uh, aside from Ellen Road, and I'm going back a few years because I've not been to the London Stadium, but West Ham at Upton Park was another one that used to get particularly toxic if the team weren't doing very well. But he need they need to take him out of the firing line. Uh, you know, at the moment, I don't really see the benefit. You've got plenty of options up front with with Ruta, with Perot, you know, uh, with, with Nonto, with Somerville. I think it's a case of keep it two or three games, keep him off the radar. The news cycle that we know, that's going to kind of, that will drop away. Leeds fans are relatively forgiving. They can be toxic, but they will they will forgive and they will forget um when when that happens in in the future so just keep them off the pitch for the next two or three games you get two or three results always forgotten i would say good result for your boys um in the Merseyside derby um there's going to be one very good agree with and i'm going to immediately throw it out there i sent you a message saying that um oh god who were it rick and I, they got subbed off that should have been sent off I still think you're being harsh. You're not gonna. No, I, no. I could see it. I could see. It. I could. It, I. I can't. You. You. You could see it. The touch was minimal. It would. It would have been. You can't say it wouldn't have been harsh. It could. In these days, it could have been given. And I agree with you. The fact that Jurgen took him straight off and put Matip on shows Jurgen knew exactly what was going on. So I'm not going to disagree with you there. It would have been harsh. That was minimal. Minimal contact, and the guy played for it. There's clearly a bit of bias in me, but yeah, we got lucky, but we were already in a position. They were down to 10 men by that point. We were already winning. Even if he'd gone, 
I don't think it would have had an ultimate impact on the game, if I'm honest. No, I don't disagree. I think that they are pretty poor, to be honest, Everton. If they do survive this season, it won't be through any uh, lack of trying to get relegated. And the, pro- the problem for me was the moment it went to 10 men, and particularly when you got a Sean Dyche, you're talking basically the, the second shittest defensive bullshit manager after Allardyce, is you knew he was going to put 10 men behind the ball. And my concern then was, can we break him down? And of course, it takes a penalty to get there. We get a little bit lucky. Mo steps up uh, and puts it away. Once we get the second, it's it it, it it's, it's easy and it's cruising. But um, it was deserved. I thought we were the better team by a long way. I, th- I thought um, that midfield is starting to come together. And just while we're talking about Liverpool, um, obviously we'd, we'd mentioned I had my, my Goggins-esque day yesterday where I'm up at fucking half four in the morning working out, shouting, who's going to carry the boats? And you don't know me, son. So uh, working out, as any Goggins fan knows, but I was absolutely shattered by the time the game came around. I watched the first half, um, obviously 3-1 by the end of the first half. Good game. Saw Gravenbach's goal go in and I was like, right, I'm done. I'm I'm off to bed. Um, Gravenbach is looking a real player for me. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen somebody be able to get the ball with their back to the opposition goal, getting the ball front forward and spin and turn and run. He had a fantastic game. And yesterday it was welcome to Liverpool to Rotariendo. He was brilliant in terms of what we bought him for, breaking the, the attacks up, getting involved. And it feels to me like now he is ready to step into that position that we've been needing and where we've been getting exposed in matches, which is having McAllister at six. So for me now, admittedly, you pointed this out to me earlier and mugged me off, given that I said McAllister was our best signing. Our midfield now should be endo defensive mid, slobber's eye, grab them back. On foot, current form, that's the three. Yeah, I mean, I was never a massive fan of McAllister in terms of the comparison that we made to slobber's eye earlier in the season. You still pointed out that it was the, uh, the signing of the summer for yourself that has quickly gone sour. He's a very good player. Gone sour, but he's been played out of position. I think if if Endo's now playing at six and they then rotate Gravenbach and McAllister and you're putting him at an eight or a ten, you're going to see a very different player. Just just to to make that clear, I think he's been played out of position and he's getting quite a hard ride. But you called it, and I can't deny it, Slobber's eye has been out undoubtedly. I mean, you could argue, again, there's a bit of bias in me here, the signing of the season in the Premier League. He has been fantastic for us. Our best player by a mile this season, uh, apart from Mo, um, and taken to the Premier League by storm. I can't believe how physical he is. He wins the ball back. He's clocked the quickest time pace-wise. He is absolutely incredible and has exceeded my wildest dreams in terms of what he's doing. I mean, I disagree. Signing of the season, signing of the season in the Premier League is clearly uh, Onana for Manchester United. Of course, he has been no, I, I agreed. Yes, yes, he absolutely is. 
But um, what I would say, and obviously it's tongue in cheek, that he clearly has not been deciding the season. He did save him a point. Well, save him three points. Uh, the Champions League group stage this week. It's one of those ones for me, isn't it? That um, he's having a bad ride, um, but you feel like for me, certainly when I watched him at Ajax and certainly at, at, at Inter, he was a quality goalkeeper. I feel like he is that example of uh, former temporary class is permanent. You know, even De Gea, they're even talking about bringing De Gea back, which is crazy. You know, I saw someone actually ring up Talk Sport when I was driving home the other day and say it's the equivalent of being fired from your job and then saying two months later, yeah, do you reckon you can come back? And they're like, yeah, fuck you. But um, he's going to take a bit of a time to adjust. But he is a very, very good goalkeeper. He's getting a harsh ride at the moment, but I do feel eventually he will come good for them. He is a good goalkeeper. I hate to say it because it's obviously man new. I'm not their biggest fans. Uh, and I love the fact that he keeps fucking up, but he will prove out to be a very good signing. Yeah, he's a, he's a fantastic goalkeeper. And despite the issues that he's suffering at the moment, this might be one of those season-changing moments for him. Same as Maguire, the uh, the goal scorer. Could very much be. You're absolutely right. The, maybe that's that confidence boost he needs, saving that penalty suddenly takes him to a new level. You don't just become a crap goalkeeper over time. Um, he was always super impressive for Ajax, super impressive for Inter. Um, man, you paid a lot of money for him. And as you say, um, as you say, don't want to repeat myself, but former's temporary class is permanent. I think he will come good for them in the long run. Uh, you know, let's be honest, De Gea, everyone wanks on about him. He had a ropey couple of seasons to start with, didn't he? Before he became... You know, the only the only goalkeeper ever to win four Player of the Seasons awards at any club. You know, um, people go through these spells. Uh, you know, he's adjusting to a new country. He's probably brought his family over. He's adjusting to a new culture. And you, you know, there's 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 a lot of other things going on in the background that, as much as I hate to admit, because obviously he is a man new player, but he'll come good, I think. Uh, I would have no worries if I was a Man U fan. I think maybe not this season, but certainly next season, they will have a very, very good goalkeeper in their hands. I think he'll be fine for the rest of the season, to be honest. I think he'll be, as I say, it'll be a moment that changes his season and obviously big slab head as well. So we'll see how that happens. Um, anything else worth pointing out in the Champions League? Have a quick champ- well, I was going to say, we'll have a quick Champions League run through just in terms of any results. I mean, obviously I'd sent you my, my uh, pictures of the results and any, any results that you wanted to just pick up on just to jump out at that in terms of particular significance to you or worth mentioning. In what world would the Champions League results be a particular significance to a Leeds United fan? I don't even understand what European football is anymore. It's just, it's like a pipe dream. Um, Bellingham scored again, didn't he? Because he's the best player in the world at the moment. He did in uh, Real Madrid winning uh, 2-1 away at Braga, which you would expect. Uh, Arsenal uh, turning it around in uh, given their poor result against Lons that we talked about the week earlier, uh, winning away 2-1 at Seville that night. And uh, Napoli finally sort of seeming to step up to the party, winning 1-0 away to Union Berlin, 
who's struggling. Uh, I was going to say, debut Champions League season is not going anywhere near where they hoped, nor I think is their Bundesliga season. I'm going to say, never mind the Champions League season, they're currently 16th. They're in the relegation playoff spot. They've lost their last, I think, five games at least. They're, they're in absolute turmoil. So, all the one for me in, in terms of the Bundesliga, all I'm keeping an eye on at the moment is Leverkusen. Leverkusen are flying. They smashed. Uh, somebody 5-1 last night in the uh, Europa League. And I've got to be honest with you, as crazy as this sounds to me, I'm almost at a point where how long do we hold on to Klopp before we try and go for Xabi Alonso? Because if it's too long, we're going to miss out and he's going to go to Real or Bayern because he's got a release clause that allows him to go to one of his three former clubs. And I personally, I'm going to stick my neck on the line here. He is the next great manager. What a strange release clause. Have you ever heard that before? Where he can? I've never heard that before. But yeah, no, that is the clause. Allegedly, again, I should say, obviously I'm not, I haven't seen his contract of employment, but he allegedly has a clause that says he is allowed to leave for any of his former clubs, which is Bayern, Real and Liverpool. And of course, the concern is we know Don Carlo is leaving Real at the end of the season to go and manage Brazil. He would be the obvious choice at that point. And that is before, a year before Klopp's um, deal finishes. And I think it's probably a pretty tough sell to get to go someone from Real Madrid to Liverpool, even as a Liverpool fan. But if you had to ask me now, one he's the only manager in the world I would take after Klopp. I think he is going to be the net, the the Jurgen Klopp, the, the 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 Don Carlo, that that level of manager. Um, he is going to be. I mean, you said this about Stevie G, and then that went south very very quickly. Uh, hang on a second, dear. I think I might have said that he was doing pretty well at Rangers. Uh, and I'm not quite sure I said he was going to be the best managerial prospect in the world. No, but which... you said that you wanted to replace Klopp. I did until well that. Uh, and the one, just as we're talking managers, we're going off track here. Still, to me, maybe you correct me if I'm wrong. The fuck's Bilardo. happening with Gallardo? Yeah, I knew you'd say What the fuck? What the fuck? Where's, what, what the fuck? What, what's happening there? I can only imagine that he's waiting until the start of next season. And then obviously he'll go from there. But... It's a weird one. It's a very, very strange one. I know that Rangers fans were saying that they didn't want him when uh, Rangers were looking to appoint a new manager recently. And I'm sat there thinking, it's not going to Rangers. What are you talking about? Just to get, we're going slightly off track here, but I'd, I'd seen this a bit in the news. And I can, I, I, again, I like to give, to give my predictions. I'm going to call this now. There's been a few rumours, I don't know if you'd seen this, that we have agreed, I don't believe it for a second, but we have agreed, Liverpool have agreed a deal for Osserman. don't know if you've seen this. So this is in preparation for the fact of the fact we're going to lose Mo in the summer to Saudi. Um, completely different players, you know, so I don't quite understand the thinking necessarily there, particularly with Nunes coming into the form that he is. But there has been talk of that. Napoli, I'll call it now, will replace Osserman with Boniface from Leverkusen, who is tearing it up at the moment and looks an amazing prospect. And Nigeria 
if whatever the next African nation championships is or World Cup that they qualify, you fucking mark my words, they are going to be flying with them two up front. Osserman and Boniface are two of the most brilliant strikers in the world at the moment. Yeah, I mean, sorry to dash your dreams on that, but I'm pretty sure Fabrizio came out, our main man, and said that that wasn't true, the uh, reports of agreeing a contract. I think he said something weird along the lines of, he hasn't agreed terms or a deal with Liverpool. He hasn't agreed terms or a deal with anyone, including Napoli. I'm like, well, we're talking about an extension there because it were all very weird. I mean, I want Cravadonna. I've said it before, if, if it was up to me, Matoma or Cravadonna, they're the two that you would are the more similar players to Mo if he's got a go and they're going to give you more of a similar vein. Osserman is an out-and-out striker and I feel that the way that Darwin has now come to the party um, and again yesterday, lovely finish. All right, he hits the post and fucks up a relatively easy chance of grabbing back pucks in. Lovely, lovely finish for the third goal, which I don't know if you've seen or not. Hardly any of the goal to aim at, smashes it in. So um, I don't feel we need an Osserman. I feel we need, if Mo goes, a Cravadonna or a Matoma. I think we uh, only need to talk about one thing, boxing-wise. I'm going to just completely skip over the prime card and all that nonsense with KSI and Tyson, Tyson Fury. Christ, that would have been a fight worth watching. And Tommy Fury, because even I'm sick of it now. Are you sure you're happy with that, given how much you wank yeah. off over it all the time? Even I'm sick of it until the next prime card, and then we'll start getting excited again. Uh, no, it was just a shambles. It, it's not worth really going into, and I'm getting sick of them all coming out and talking about it further and getting more publicity for it. So let's not talk about that. Let's talk about a proper fight. Unfortunately, not this one that's happening because this is also not a proper fight. And we still don't even know whether it's actually sanctioned as a an actual professional bout or whether it's an exhibition bout. Fury and Garnu, tomorrow it is. So I think by the time this gets released, uh, it'll be today. I mean, is it just a joke fight? I, I don't see any way that this will end up being anything other than a complete and utter knockout. Interesting is what I would call it. And and I'm certainly an interested spectator. I, I feel that it is a complete mismatch. I will go out and say it. It's got one of the best promos I've seen outside of the UFC um, for a long time. I, I, I don't I'm, I think I showed it to you. I would encourage anyone to look at it and maybe we'll stick it up on the on, on the Twitter page where Things are just getting thumped and smashed. And I was like, this is a fucking promo. This is the type of shit that gets me going. Like, gets me, I feel chills down my spine when I watch that type of promotion. And it feels like that's UFC level promotion, not fucking Sky Sports boxer promotion, which is bullshit. Do you know what I mean, they're doing that, that they've gone all out for that. And I, I, I really, really, really like the the, the, the promo for it. Um, I mean, let's come on to, before I give my view, because I know you've got a view, um, you tell me what you think will happen and break it down for me in a little bit of detail how you think this is going to go. 
I like to envisage a world where Nganu walks forward and just sparks him out in the first round, especially with the way that Fury has conducted himself throughout the build-up to this. He clearly thinks it's a bit of a mess about, and he's probably right, to be honest. He's fighting a 0-0 zero zero boxer, regardless of Nganu's striking ability, regardless of how you know how scary um, Nganu has been in the UFC. This is a completely different sport. The gloves are obviously a different ounce. Will that power translate? We'll, we'll soon find out. If it did happen, it would be one of the biggest upsets in world boxing ever, because regardless of the background, he is still a, a zero and zero boxer. He's never had a boxing match. So it would be fantastic. As much as I want to see it, realistically, he's just going to play about with him in it. I think he described, Fury described it as ping pong player trying to play Djokovic at tennis. And it's a pretty good analogy. He's just going to dance around him. He'll probably try and put on a bit of a show to make Mayweather-esque, is what I would describe it as when Mayweather's been doing these exhibition fights. As much as I want to see another outcome, it only goes one way and then obviously builds up to a potential Usyk fight at the end of December. Yeah, I I can't disagree. I mean, again, I... I like Fury or I liked him far more before he started dodging um, Usyk. And obviously that's the fight that people want to see, not him fighting uh, MMA fighters with zero and zero records. I appreciate the fact that he's taking on someone with officially the hardest punch ever. I think that has to be taken into account. And if he can get sparked and laid out like he can by Deontay Wilder, and Garnu does have a puncher's chance. That's 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 as, as much as it can. It, the, 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 the glove point you make is completely true. This was four ounce gloves, not twelve ounce gloves. This would be a completely different fucking kettle of fish. And I thought, you know, um, and Garnu lays a four ounce glove on him. He might not be getting back up, but with twelve ounce gloves, I'll be honest with you. It, it, I personally don't think it's beyond the world of possibilities that Fury has taken this too lightly and Ngannou sits him on his ass once. But I think that in the same way maybe that it did with um, with Wilder, that wakes him up. I, 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 I would agree with you that I think in some ways Fury's plan will be to play with him a bit. I think obviously because it's out in Saudi Arabia, the amount of money that's being paid... I don't know if it would go down too well if he comes out and just fucking sparks Ngannou in the first round. I get the feeling he has to, he's under pressure to to put on a bit of a show or make the fight last a certain period of time. So he will be dancing around. He will be um, stringing it out and, 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 and outboxing him. Whereas just Ngannou will be looking for that one or two bombs. Um, if it was interesting the way in, because as I said to you, Ngannou is one of the very few, if probably three or four fighters in the whole of the UFC that have to cut to make the 265 weight limit at heavyweight. And he weighed in at 272, did you tell me? Something like that over today? Something was it in that region? Yeah, and Ngannou was 272.1 and Fury so, was 277.7. Uh, and I mean, let's be fair, Fury's never been particularly uh, ripped. You know, he looks even more dad bod than he normally does, which tells me he probably hasn't taken it particularly seriously. 
but you could argue has he put on that extra weight to allow the ability to take the extra shots that Ngannou is going to do. He, he, he must have, even though he must be thinking this is a complete mismatch, he must appreciate the fact that he is dealing with someone that has, if not the most knockout power, the second most knockout power he's ever had after Deontay Wilder. He cannot be under any illusion that that is not the case. And that's the only thing I would say if I was in Garnu's camp going into this. Wilder had, and Wilder has, could I say, no boxing ability. The guy is one of the most awkward, swinging, quote-unquote, boxers that I've ever seen in my life. The guy's a fighter, he isn't a boxer. But he was able to put Fury in his ass three times in total, one of which, obviously, was that miracle 14 count before he got up. So, and Garnu can take a little bit of joy and hope from that. But realistically, I was watching Ngannou's, um sparring and the little workout session that they do before every fight, and he looks like he's gassed himself out. You just think, how are you going to do this in 10 rounds against Fury? That was something I was going to bring up and has always been a weakness of uh, Ngannou, is he would quite easily gas himself out in 15 minutes in three five-round fights. You know, if he didn't put someone away in the first round, which he did fucking plenty of times, let's be fair. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you recall the the Derek Lewis fight. It might have been one of the most... It is undoubtedly the most boring MMA fight I've ever seen, considering you've got Ngannou, the hardest puncher in the world, and Derek Lewis, the man that holds the most knockouts in UFC history... There was hardly a punch thrown. It was absolutely dog shit because both men were just so concerned about the other's power and what they were going to do. So um, it's interesting how Fury approaches it. I, I agree with you. I think he will come out in the first few rounds dancing around. I think if it goes past something like five or six, we will see Fury gassing hard. And sorry, Ngannou gassing hard and really, really struggling. And I think that leaves it open for Ngannou to, sorry, Fury to, to, to knock him out. But he, if there is ever the, the cliche of a puncher's chance was written for Ngannou. Dan Hardy, of all the people to mention on this podcast, uh, was actually on Sky Sports recently. I think he did a little bit of an interview about it and he say, basically said... And Garnu's greatest asset going into this fight, yes, he's got very big punching power and, and that's something to take into account. That's not his biggest asset. His biggest asset is the element of surprise that essentially he's never fought before. We don't know what his boxing style is necessarily going to be like. We expect he's just going to start throwing overhand rights at him. But that's the biggest thing. And he thinks that actually, had he had a warm-up fight against Yichizora, you know, a Parker, etc., that would have actually gone against him because then you've got footage for the, the Fury camp to study and think, actually, yeah, this guy is easy to set down. We'll just do this, we'll do that. Because he's a complete unknown, he might just come into this, start swinging, catch Fury at the top at Temple and spark him out, which would be, as I say, very enjoyable. I, I, I can't disagree. And of course, he's got Iron Mike in his corner, which if you wanted someone to train you to fucking... Certainly, if, if I could choose someone to train me for a boxing fight where I was fighting an undefeated world linear champion, 
I want Iron Mike in my corner. I just don't see a world where this happens, if I'm honest with you. I just, that that element of surprising, Garnu has never been the most crafty or um, cerebral fighters, if we put it that way. Tyson is quite clever, you know, knows how to do that. Ngannou has always just been a bomber. He's never had anything more than that overhand right. And yet you look at the Overeem fight. I don't think I've ever seen a worse knockout in MMA. He's curled his toes, nearly knocked his fucking face into fucking orbit. It was that hard. But that's with four ounce gloves. 12 ounce gloves is entirely different. And yeah, I I, I would love to see it because it would shake the world of combat sports up. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. But let's say in this alternative universe that I don't think exists that Nganu wins, he becomes the biggest combat sports star in the world overnight. I, I can't disagree. It, absolutely. If you knock out who is widely revered worldwide as the best heavyweight boxer on the planet, obviously Usyk will have something to say about that, but the majority of people would put him as the, the pound for pound number one, um, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, again, we disagree. We think Inoue is up there, but a, a lot of people essentially say he's one of the best heavyweight boxers of this generation, if not further. I know one person I saw on Twitter thought that he was one of the best ever, which was, was quite funny to read. Um, but absolutely, if he knocks out a world heavyweight champion, regardless of whether the title's on the line, it changes things significantly. It puts the Usyk fight on the 23rd of December up in the air. Does that still continue? Does Nganu become a number one contender? Does he get ranked by the WBC overnight as one of the best? It, it shows up so much, they, uh, so much in terms of boxing and a lot of variables will be there if the miracle happens and we, we can only hope. The only thing I would mention, because you mentioned Mike Tyson, did you see who called out Mike Tyson? Someone who wants to fucking die, even at uh, fucking 56. Who the fuck is calling out Mike Tyson? Shall I, shall I try and do the accent and just completely ruin this here? Uh, is it going to be racist? So try, don't do the accent. Simply not racist. I won't, right. no, I'm just trying to get a bit of gravel in my voice. Or is it? Uh, Shannon Briggs. Wait, wait. Uh, Come on, champ! Don't <laughs> even try it. Uh, Mike Tyson, the, the man I named my son after. Oh, you know what? Give, give me John a Fury. Mention. He said, John Fury only fears one person, and he's not of this world. That's God Almighty. Uh, but yeah, he basically said, any man alive wants to fight John Fury, I'm ready to go. And then he looks a at Mike Tyson and goes, he goes, Mike Tyson, what have you got to say? Training gypsy. <laughs> against one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. He I would say goes, he goes, uh, your man will get his head boxed off and stopped. Don't you worry about that. And if I'm wrong, me and you are gonna fight straight after. <laughs> like, Has the man got a death wish a genuine death wish? Like He's Tyson's old. Tyson's getting old, don't get me wrong. And he smokes a lot of weed. <laughs> and he's a completely chilled out guy compared to the animal that he was. But that is asking for a death in the ring. And to be honest with you, sometimes the way that uh, John Fury conducts himself, I wouldn't be against seeing that fight and seeing his, see his fucking space smashed in by Tyson. But you have 
got to be a lunatic even at these day, this age, to be calling out Mike Tyson. My throat is absolutely killing. It even sound anything like him. All I've done there is just absolutely tore through the back of my throat. Um, just before we finish, just looking at the odds for the Fury and Garnu fight, what do you think Tyson Fury's odds to win are? Uh, to win, I'm going to go seven to one on. Ten to one on. And Garnu, you can get at six to one. Um I can't see a knockout or betting odds. Otherwise, I mean, if he wins, he's going to knock him out in it, and he's, he's not going to win. So, well, it's going to go imagine. either way. It's going to be a knockout, I think, personally. But I would be interested in. I'll look while you're doing that. What would what are what's the what's the odds of um, Ngannou knocking him out? That's, well, that's what I mean. If Ngannou win, it'll probably be at six to one. It'll be the same as him winning because if he wins, it'll be by knockout. The only other thing I would say just before we close out, I know we won't go too much into the undercard because it's not overly interesting. There are a couple of fights. You've got uh, Wardley and um, Adelaide for the uh, British title heavyweight. Um, every fight but one on the undercard is a heavyweight bout. So it's actually not a bad undercard because even if you're not necessarily interested in watching Takam or Bicoli or uh, Parker take on Simon Keane, it's all heavyweight boxing. So the majority of these fights are going to end up in knockouts, which is, is always exciting before you get to the, the main card or the main event. Sorry. I mean, you've got, I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at, I got up a bet fair here just to, to throw out, throw a couple of interesting bets at you to win within 60 seconds. Tyson Fury's twenty six to one, and Francis Ngannou is a hundred and one to one. Not going to happen. The fight to go the distance is five and a half to one. Interestingly, and if there was going to be a, 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 an odd that I'm picking out out of all of these ones I'm looking at, which I can't see happening, but I'm just going to throw it out there: Francis Ngannou to win, and round four to start. 17 to 1 on. 17 to 1. What, so they think that it's going to be over in three rounds? Yeah. That's weird. Is that essentially because they're saying that Ngannou is, if he's going to win, he's going to win it within four because he'll gas himself out otherwise? Well, pretty much it will spark him out in three or be done. Um, method of victory. Let's have a quick look at that one. Ngannou by KO or TKO, 10 to 1. I might put a fiver on. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. That's might not. That if there, if there, if there was a bet, that's the one. Uh, Fury to win by TKO or KO. It's got to be odds on. One point two. So that yeah. is five to one on. Yeah, I'm going to say that. That'll be the favourite because it won't go to points. It'd be a very strange evening if Fury can't take him out based on the fact that he hasn't got the biggest gas tank. But I would just want I, I'll be honest with you. In the same it. way that we talked about Kamaev Usman earlier, Ngannou last. I mean, what what's this? Just you have to correct me. Ten rounds here. Ten. ten. Yeah. If, if Ngannou lasts ten rounds without getting knocked out, that puts him in the Usman Kamaev category. That he comes out of this with a lot of respect and. On the other side, Fury then loses a lot. I agree, because Fury has to take him out, regardless of how 
strong Ngannou is and his, his punching power and his knockout power, this is a fighter who's never boxed in his life. He has to win by whether it's stoppage, whether it's an actual KO. He just has to take him out. He can't go the distance. No, totally agree with you. But as you say, that that, it, that, that that's the perfect analogy is that if he, if Ngannou could even just survive the 10 rounds, even if he gets paggered and loses nine, 10 of the 10 rounds, he comes out with some credit out of that. And if that happens, Usyk is sat ringside rubbing his hands because he would be over the moon to see Fury struggle to take out someone who has never fought before. Don't disagree, but I think the training camps that Fury would go into for Ngannou compared to Usyk would be very different. Now, call me naive, and, and if you're a professional, you're approaching this in the same manner. I think Fury knows this is a gimme, and he's probably not taking it that seriously. He knows Usyk is not the same. And you could even argue if he was playing 4D chess with us all, he takes this easy. He fucking wins by decision. And everyone's a bit like, ah, you wank. You're not that great. He sets it up against Usyk. He goes into a hard training camp, sparks Usyk. Boom. No, because that, that would then rely on Usyk not taking it seriously. And Usyk is a scary, scary man who is the utmost professionally. It wouldn't matter what happens in this fight. He's still going to prepare the same. But I'm sure we both agree. Scary is the wrong word for me for Usyk. He is super efficient. He is an incredible boxer. He is not scary because of his power. Because he's not... In any way, you don't knocking. have to be a knockout artist to be scary, though, in boxing. Suppose, certainly in a heavyweight boxing, if you can outbox someone, you're a scary boxer. Just because you're not a knockout artist like Wilder, does that mean Wilder's a scarier man than Fury? No, but I, I, I just I, I, scary is not a t- incredibly skilled, incredibly technical. I would completely agree with. I wouldn't say Usyk personally to me is scary because you know he's not going to knock you out. He's going to outbox you and he might box your head off, but he's not going to knock you out. I'd prefer to be knocked out than spend 12 rounds getting just beaten the fuck out of by Usyk personally. Well, you're the man that thinks you can take on fucking Francis Ngannou for a million pounds. So um... I'm, I'm taking out John Fury next and I'm going to take out uh, Mike Tyson. I'm going to take him well, all. Just you wait night. till I fucking win the lottery, mate. Because I'm telling you what, I'm setting that fucking fight up uh, for for you and Francis Ngannou, and I'll put a million in escrow for the fight, and I'll put five million in escrow for the medical attention that you'll need after your face is caved in, if not for your funeral. So when I get the million pounds for fighting, do I get the five million pounds when I knock him out? <laughs> <laughs> You could at yeah. least respond, right? Yeah, you really do. You really do. I'm getting closer and closer to being a very, very rich man. Perfect time to end it then. You got a longer episode, guys, because of the fact that we uh, we left you without an episode last week. So there's his apology for it. We'll be back next week, as always, where we discuss how Francis Ngannou knocked out the heavyweight champion of the world. Thanks very much for listening, as always. And we'll speak to you next week. 